This is the IBJ podcast for the week of October the 9th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. As you know, this morning we will be announcing the next targets for our stand-up strike as we fight for a historic victory at the Big Three. But first, as always, I want to take a moment to honor our members who are already on strike. Together, we're putting the fight back in the UAW and in the entire labor movement. A union that's not prepared to strike to win is like a fighter with one hand tied behind his back. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. That was the voice of Sean Fain, the recently elected president of the United Auto Workers, as he emboldens the troops in the union strike against the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. Fain seemingly came from nowhere to win the UAW presidential election in March by a razor-thin margin. He ran on a reform platform, promising to toss out the status quo and stand up to the automakers. He took a hard line in contract negotiations, and when the automakers didn't meet the union's aggressive demands by the September 15th deadline, the UAW took the unusual attack of striking against all three companies at the same time. It's still in the middle of what's called a stand-up strike, meaning that it adds more and more of its 145,000 members to picket lines as negotiations drag on. The UAW has 13,000 members in Indiana, but no workers in those Indiana plants have been asked to strike yet, as of this recording, on October the 6th. But Sean Fain knows all about the auto industry's history in Indiana. He grew up in Kokomo, the grandson of two UAW members at General Motors. Another grandparent started at Chrysler in 1937, the year the workers joined the union after a sit-down strike. Fain himself worked as an electrician in a Chrysler foundry in Kokomo and was active in the union for decades. Of course, Chrysler now goes by the name Stellantis, its new parent company, and it employs about 7,000 people in Kokomo and nearby Tipton. Now, 54 years old, Fain is leading a high-stakes battle against the U.S. auto industry, which is remarkable given that he has had such a relatively low profile in the union until recently. We at IBJ thought it would be instructive to go back to his old stomping grounds and try to get a sense of how he was shaped by his decades in Kokomo. It's worth noting that he still carries in his pocket one of his grandfather's Chrysler pay stubs from 1940. In this week's episode of the IBJ podcast, we are joined by reporter John Russell so he can tell us what he's learned. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, IBJ reporter, John Russell. Thanks for making time today. Mason, always a pleasure to talk about Indiana news. I'm going to give a little bit of background on Kokomo uh, for the folks uh, that are not from around here. Why so, Kokomo? What's going on in Kokomo? <laughs> it's what you should ask. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It is a, it's a, about 60 miles north of Indianapolis, very much a manufacturing town in the classic Rust Belt sense. Continental Steel Corp had extensive operations there for decades and employed thousands of people until it closed in the 1980s. 
But its fortunes and prominence also have closely followed the auto industry. And its history is littered with, with firsts related to automobiles. A very early version of the horseless carriage was tested in Kokomo in 1894. The first pneumatic rubber tire in the United States was created at Kokomo Rubber Tire Company. The first push-button car radio, if you can remember those, was created at Delco Radio Vision of General Motors. Now, Chrysler established its first manufacturing operation in Kokomo in 1937. It established a transmission plant in 1955, a casting plant in 1965. Both of those operations grew significantly over the years. They added more plants. Chrysler now goes by the name of Stellantis, its new parent company, and it employs about 7,000 people in Kokomo and nearby Timpton. So that's our backdrop. Yes, that was interesting. In fact, I'm a little ashamed to say I've never spent much time in Kokomo until this week. But I did stop in the public library when I was there. And if you've stopped in there and you see down the main hallway, there's this floor-to-ceiling series of glass windows that have etched into them, or maybe it's printed on with ink. All these firsts that you just mentioned. City of firsts, I, I guess that's an old saying around those parts, but I was enthralled by all the things that the Kokomo had done throughout its history. My family uh, is from Kokomo, the farming family going back several generations. And uh, and I remember going uh, probably to the same place and seeing some of those. I vaguely remember the traffic light was either invented or it was it was so well implemented. <laughs> it became like known as the city of traffic lights. I guess in the same way that Carmel is the city of roundabouts now. Yes, they've um, they perfected over the years, having every motor stop as many times as possible on their way between Indy and Michigan, haven't <laughs> they? they? Did. It was really, it was an experience that you really had to live through to appreciate. I once got caught uh, in the middle of a tornado watch. That's the one where they actually see the tornado, right? Uh, on 31 going through, uh, through Kokomo, and it was absolutely terrifying. Everybody was stopped at traffic lights. So anyway, that's our backdrop. Now, I, I take it Sean Fain, grew up in a working class family. What did his parents do? Yes, Sean Fain, quite the interesting character all over the news these days. And we're now bringing him on stage to talk about him because why? He's from Kokomo and he is all over the front page of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the evening newscasts because he is leading a national strike of auto workers against the big three automakers. So I went up there to learn a little bit more about Sean and his background. And what was your question again? <laughs> his parents. His parents. His parents. Okay. Yeah. His dad was a policeman in the Kokomo Police Department and rose to become chief of police, is no longer living. Um, his mom was a nurse. So you can say that both of them, for a good part of their careers, were working class folks doing hourly jobs for a paycheck, which is quite typical of much of Kokomo and, you know, much of the United States, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you weren't farming, you were probably working for one of the manufacturers in Kokomo or one of the companies that served the manufacturers in Kokomo. Now, he, uh, he did have family connections, however, to the, to the auto plants. Can you tell me about that? Sure, yeah. Long family history in auto plants. Two of his grandparents 
parents were members of the uh, UAW who worked at General Motors and retired from there. And another grandfather started at Chrysler in 1937, the year the workers joined the union after a sit-down strike. So I'm sure there were many family stories about the auto industry, uh, about uh, working in the plants. It was something that was very much uh, part of his, you know, part part of the family story. So he started working at uh, Chrysler, and he was a an electrician. He was an electrician. So when you work in an auto plant, you can either be in something called skilled trades, which is things like an electrician or a carpenter, or you can work in assembly. You can be working in something called production. There's lots of different types of jobs, but he had a very high skilled job with a higher than normal pay um, as an electrician in what was then the, a Chrysler casting plant, uh, which was part of the, or, and its members were represented by uh, local 1166 of the auto workers. And he was uh, pretty active in the union, as, as I take it. Oh, yeah. He got involved almost right away and um, became a um, skilled trades committeeman, which means somebody who handles problems between management and workers. If there are grievances or work issues, he tries to get involved in negotiations, bargaining issues. So he was a skilled trades committeeman and then rose to plant shop chairman, which is one of the top jobs. Uh, and he did that for five terms, and terms are normally three years. So it was quite a long time. Now, you spent some time in Kokomo, obviously. What do people there remember about him? Well, talk to the average person in the street, and they've heard of him, but they don't know him because he's been gone for 10 years or so, um, now working in Detroit for the International, but still has a lot of people who remember him closely uh, at the union halls. They remember him as uh, somebody who's quite headstrong, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, in a good way. Uh, someone who's standing up for workers, is someone who thinks that workers have gotten a bad deal over the last 20 years and wants to do something to improve that, turn that around. Someone who hasn't been afraid to call bad contract offers, bad contract offers and throw them in the trash can. He was a little bit of a rabble rouser. But then again, Kokomo had a reputation for being a rabble rouser and contracts that maybe were passed or recommended by the international didn't always pass in Kokomo. So he was one of the dissidents who was demanding better better offers, better terms. You spoke with former Kokomo mayor Greg Goodnight, who I did not know was president of the Steelworkers Local 2958 when Fain was president of 1166. What uh, was Goodnight's impression of him? Yeah, Goodnight um, is, a, is a former local president, as you said, different union, but they did overlap for a time. So Goodnight remembered him as a very serious, very hardworking, very committed type of union leader, uh, had good things to say. But when you look at Sean Fain, he doesn't look very assuming. I don't know what people think about when they think about, you know, who's the head of of uh, an international union, but he, he's not like a hard-nosed Jimmy Hoffa type. He's not like a burly line worker. You know, he, he kind of looks like my shop teacher, honestly. Very, I mean, very, you know, normal Joe kind of appearance, but he apparently has a very stiff spine. 
And as you as you noted, I mean, his relationship with the local hasn't always been smooth. You uh, note in your story that in 2007, when he was a committee person at the local, he refused to go along with the union's recommendation for uh, for deep concessions from Chrysler. What happened there? Well, this is right around the time of the huge uh, financial collapse at the end of um, George W. Bush's term as president and right as Barack Obama was coming in. And there was, I mean, there was a crisis in the automotive industry, as you remember. And so Chrysler and the other automakers are asking for big concessions. And they they wanted two tiers where the brand new workers would earn less. And that's, Sean Fain thought that was a disgrace. And he said that you might, I forget what the exact quote was, but something like you might as well get a gun and shoot yourself in the head if you vote for this contract. That's pretty much exactly what he said, yeah. He said two-tier wages have no place in this union. He wasn't alone in Kokomo. Both unions rejected the offer, although it passed nationally. Um, So I think his issues were with the national and he was in sync with the local sentiments at the time. Define the union leadership at that time, though. I take it turns out to be kind of a defining moment for him. Well, yeah. I mean, as a as a local union leader, people were looking up to him, and how he reacted to a contract offer was extremely important. And he told the international UAW, "We're not going to take." these givebacks. We're not going to take concessions. We're not going to put up with this two-tiered system. And, you know, pretty much that became sort of a marker in his career uh, from which he would just build going forward uh, his reputation. So he leaves Kokomo about a decade ago and and goes to the Detroit, Detroit headquarters of uh, UAW. Right. The Detroit headquarters, he becomes an international representative the headquarters is called Solidarity House. It's a, you know, it's a it's a union nickname. I'm not sure who thought it up, but it's a good name. Uh, and in Solidarity House, the international reps help with uh, a whole range of areas, including contract bargaining, uh, enforcing the contract, organizing, civic engagement, health and safety. Uh, so they're helping workers throughout their divisions. And Sean Fain was working mostly for workers at Chrysler at that time. So then it seems as though there's a major problem, uh, the UAW, that helps shoot him into the presidency. There was a a corruption probe in 2020 by the U.S. Justice Department against UAW leadership and several Fiat Chrysler executives. That resulted in a move to reform the union. And... Something very specific happens there. Can you explain that? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, that was a huge black eye for the UAW. Charges of embezzlement and corruption and several union leaders were prosecuted and convicted and sent to prison uh, for terms of about two years. And so the membership decided they wanted to go a different route in choosing their leadership up until that point, they had elected delegates who would go to their national conventions to choose officers. They decided overwhelmingly that they wanted to, for the first time in their history, and their union was formed in the 1930s, so it's um, going on, what, 80-plus years. 
that they had done it the old way. They wanted to do it a new way and have one person, one vote, a direct election of officers. Everyone would get a ballot and there would no longer be this, you know, delegate system, which resulted in apparently uh, sometimes bad officers uh, leading this union. So Fain decided he's going to run. And he's going to lead on a very militant platform. So that was his time. Yeah. So he yeah, adopts a very confrontational strategy with the big three from the very start saying, yeah, it's time to get tougher with the automakers after years of, of giving in to them. He said, this is our shot for true reform of the UAW and putting the power and control of our union back in the hands of the membership. So I'm taking it that really resonated with voters. Well, with with enough voters anyway, sure. I mean, this was a very close election. He was running against an incumbent who was not implicated in the corruption, but Sean wanted a whole clean new slate, including himself at the top, to take over the union. So he won in a very tight election by less than 500 votes out of many thousands cast. So he won by less than one percentage point. So not like he came in with this huge landslide mandate, but people knew what he was running on. He made no secret of the fact that it was time to treat the automakers as the opponent and not as strictly partners who are always going to ask for things, ask for givebacks. So his message reached enough people, and I guess that's a, that was enough for a victory. So what was really interesting to me is that once he got elected, he didn't soften the rhetoric at all. There wasn't any kind of like, hey, let's, you know, let's start back from square one. I have a good faith attitude towards you guys. You know, let's try to get together and do something great. He literally says, we are here to come together to ready ourselves for the war against our one and only true enemy multi-billion dollar corporations and employers that refuse to give our members their fair share. It sounds right. like those are fighting words. <laughs> they're fighting words, but they're not really that uncommon among union leaders. I've covered in 30 years in journalism, I've covered Teamster elections. I've covered steel worker elections, rubber worker elections. This is pretty common language, but, you know, he's – He's laying it right out there for them and saying, the, the big three are not our friends. The big three are not going to give us anything unless we demand it. And he lays it out in language that Bernie Sanders would approve of, calling them multi-billion dollar corporations and employers that refuse to give us our fair share. So, yeah, he's really pushing hard. Okay, let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IPJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and my conversation with IBJ reporter John Russell about UAW President Sean Fain. 
So what is the UAW saying it wants from the big three right now? What does the UAW want? Oh, well, they want an end to these two-tier systems, first of all. They want wage increases to make up for the small wages or the givebacks they've had over the last two decades. Uh, the union has asked for a wage increase of up to 40% over four years, along with full pay for 32-hour work weeks, too, plus better retirement pensions, improved health care, and a whole list of other things. That may sound a lot like a lot to you and me, but to them, to the union, they're looking at auto companies that have made tens of billions of dollars in profits over the last few years, and they say it's time to share the riches. We've given when times were hard. Now that the money is coming in, we want to be partners in some of the glory now. So he persuades the membership to strike against the big three automakers all at the same time, which I take it is a departure from past strategies. Right, right. Uh, so the past strategy was the UAW would pick one of the automakers and it would rotate over the years. And then they would go into negotiations, hammer out a, an agreement, and that would become the pattern for taking it to the other two big automakers. And if they couldn't get a deal, they would strike. And while they were striking, say, Ford, Chrysler and GM sales would increase because Ford couldn't produce as many cars. And so none of the automakers really liked that system, although it had its opportunities. But even worse was to strike all three at the same time, which had never been done before. So a couple of weeks ago, they pulled all their members together in all their union halls. And in a simultaneous announcement, they said what the first three big plants were going to be struck, which they call them a walking strike. And there yeah, was instead one of everybody going out at once. Instead of everybody. So it was three big assembly plants in three different states. So how have these demands been met by the automakers? Oh, they've, they've all said that uh, the union is asking way too much, being far too unreasonable, and that they've made very fair offers. For example, GM posted its latest offer online, which included 20% wage increases over four years. So not the 40% the union is asking, but 20% is still 5% a year. No changes in healthcare premiums, which is something that a lot of workers and a lot of companies would like. Wage steps to be cut in half to four years, meaning you can get to your top, top of your wage bracket sooner and make more money faster and, and some other things. So Mary Barra, CEO of GM, the lot, largest automaker, uh, told workers that we're giving you a fair deal. This is more than reasonable. Please take it. Please listen to us. It addresses what you've told us is most important to you. And in her words, she said, in spite of the heated rhetoric from UAW leadership. So that was a nice, a not so subtle swipe at what she thinks of Sean Fain's tactics. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to ask for a lot. It may seem unreasonable, but in union negotiating, you don't go in there asking for just a little slice. Uh, you want the whole... You want the whole feast, and then you'll come away with more. So 
I, I, he, what he's doing, Sean Fain's strategy might be a little risky because he's really setting up expectations fairly high for his members. We're going to get 40% or these companies will never get back to work when they might come away with part of that. Um, and they've already been offered maybe something like half of it. So we'll see what they actually get at the end of the day. Also, the strategy of only striking, as you said, the standing strike, uh, selected plans instead of the whole membership going on strike, and that is also a departure? Well, standing strike, yeah, workers will come out of a plant here, a plant there, a parts manufacturer here, something over there. And it'll sort of like the automakers will never know what is next on the list. They can't plan for how to, you know, bring in their managers, their white collar non-union workers to shore up a, a parts plant or an engine plant. So it's sort of like a, a ninja plan to keep, keep the enemy off balance. Is there anything in Vane's past that would suggest that he's a master tactician? You know, it's not like he's a black belt in judo that I know of or that he's, you know, got a 2000 rating in chess or anything like that. He's, but he's been around this game long enough to know that the time might be right. Plus, he's got the president on his side. Uh, president Biden. President Biden. Yeah. President Biden came out to the picket line in, in Michigan uh, about a week ago. It wasn't a long visit, a few minutes on the picket line, but first time in modern history that a president has ever been on a picket line to show his support. And you know that there may have been political reasons for that. He needs to show that he supports auto workers, but is he going to risk, you know, uh, getting in sideways with some of the biggest manufacturers in the country? He thinks these guys are important to him, and he's going to give whatever uh, support he can. There's this really interesting detail in your story about Fane, that he carries in his pocket one of his grandfather's Chrysler pay stubs from 1940. Yes, he does. It, there's images of it I've seen online, and it's, you know, the guy made a certain amount of money. I can't remember what it was. It was very small, and there's several, several deductions. But it's just a reminder to Fane that this is his family's legacy. He's out there every day trying to, trying to uh, advance and support. And he's not looking out just for himself. He's looking out for a long tradition of the working man in this country and trying to help uh, his brothers and sisters uh, throughout the industry. There's an argument to be made that he's asking too much, too little, just right. But the fact that this is where his heart is, I don't think anyone can argue. What do we make of the fact that he hasn't called for any plants in Indiana to strike yet? Oh, you know, we have a lot of plants in Indiana. There's a big GM plant in Bedford. There's all these assembly Chrysler or Stellantis uh, transmission and casting plants up in Howard County. There's there's plants and parts shops throughout the state. And I wake up every day thinking one of them might have an announcement. I think our time could come. I wouldn't make anything of it. The Hollywood writer strike that 
ended, I don't know, about a week ago or so. That went on for five-ish months, I believe. I believe so. And it was, at least in the accounts that I've seen, it took a few months for leadership really to wrap their head around the idea that these guys were serious. And that once they really started to pay attention, that they got a deal done pretty fast. But it really was a question of, are the people on top paying attention? I'm not in the room with these with these negotiators. You hear the stories before and after. You get you can read some tea leaves sometimes. How much are they willing to talk? Can they activate and mobilize their members? So one of the interesting tactics that the local has is called something called Red Shirt Day for the last couple of Sundays, and then for as many out as they can go, as they need to go. Uh, they're having the locals show up in their red shirts, and I don't know what the lettering says exactly, something like, and the two-tier system, or we're on strike, or something to that effect. Um, and they're going throughout town trying to build support, showing that we are big parts of this community. We help support the economy. Our fight is your fight. So as long as you can see their members getting out there every Sunday and doing that, you can see that. That's what gives negotiators power inside when they can get point to thousands, tens of thousands of workers ready to, you know, get out there and hit the sidewalks. Is that what they've seen though in Kokomo, that they get thousands of people for these um, shirt days? In the early days, no, it's more like hundreds. I'm not sure if they've asked for everyone to turn out or just enough to make a show, but they've had hundreds and these... And Kokomo locals represent over 7,000 workers. So, I mean, they could make a much bigger show, I suppose. So right now, it sounds like we're, we're stuck in this uh, in this pattern where the UAW will just out of nowhere call for more plants to uh, go on strike. That's kind of what we wait for on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, will they pull the trigger once a week, twice a month? How often are they going to increase the odds and you know turn the screws, basically? That's what people are looking for. And it's an indication of, are they making progress? If you're talking seriously and making good progress, you're not going to tell your workers to you know double down on the pain. You're going to say, we're at a good place right now. It's when they see plant after plant after plant going on strike where you can get a sense of, this Sean Fain means business, and he's not getting what he wants. All right. Well, um, usually I say, hey, let's uh, let's check back in a year and see how things go. <laughs> Hopefully, it won't be that long. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll be back next week with an update. You never know. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck. My thanks again to John Russell. You can read his full story on Fane's formative experiences in this week's edition of IBJ. And there are a few other stories in the latest issue I want to draw to your attention. First up, Mayor Jim Brainerd has had such a massive influence on the evolution of Carmel over his 27 years in office that the candidates now running to succeed him must figure out how to present their plans for a new era of leadership in ways that jibe with his legacy. Reporter Daniel Bradley has more. Also in this week's issue, Mickey Shuey reports on efforts to craft a comprehensive redevelopment plan for Indiana Avenue in downtown Indianapolis. 
And Peter Blanchard examines concerns that Indiana still isn't producing enough highly skilled workers to work in high-tech fields such as artificial intelligence, data visualization, and cybersecurity. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. <laughs>